hello everybody um welcome to another episode of my podcast uh today i have margarita from uh, twitter and she is very well known on twitter and um she has many viral tweets and talks about a wide variety of uh very interesting topics and i think one of the main topics that uh is interesting right now is Twitter itself. So what are your thoughts on Twitter as a platform? What's going on now? Uh, welcome and uh, how's things? Uh, things are good. Um, that's a very good question. I joined Twitter because everybody was joining Twitter and I just was curious to see what's on there. And then sometimes I would see some people posting their ideas and I just, I didn't fully agree with them so I just started off by just replying to their ideas, like how I would change them or why I don't agree with them. And slowly I just started like seeing how good of a platform it is because of the limited character count, you, you have to express your idea in a very short amount of characters. And it just became kind of like a writing exercise. Like whenever I had an idea or opinion about something, I had to try to condense it in the best way possible without losing any information and yeah, I wasn't oh sorry I was gonna say that's what I find the most challenging about Twitter is that I'm very used to uh, fleshing out ideas very thoroughly and mm -hmm. writing at, at length and Twitter forces yeah. me to write a very short amount uh, or write the idea in a very short amount of space and that's um, I find it uh, an interesting sort of brain uh, brain exercise but yeah, yeah it's, it's like a game and yeah. the best way like you feel the most satisfied when you craft a tweet that you think like it really does capture all of the like the essence of the idea that you care about and expressing and it like it's like a most distilled form of your idea and you might be able to flesh it out elsewhere but that's like the main point um yeah. So that's how I started off. And I wasn't really looking too much at engagement, but like, you know, like I've, I was on there for enough time that some like famous accounts retweeted me a few times and like people liked what I was writing. Um, yeah, so, and I was really grateful for that because on Twitter you encounter people who are like, like it's not, everybody is not dumb on there as, contrary to popular belief, like there are many intelligent people on there and people you would never ordinarily be able to encounter in your normal life. And you get to talk to them, you get to exchange your ideas, they get to, ref they can refine your thinking and your writing skills, which is really valuable. And you can form a network with these people who you ordinarily would not have access to, which I found really valuable as well. So, like it yeah, made me think for over time, to be honest. Yeah, it's uh, like anything, right? It's sort of how you use it. There's like one side of Twitter, which is, you know, instantly like cat pictures and whatever. But if you, uh, it's it, yeah, it's however you want to use it. It will, it will. That's what's so interesting about it. I find is you can use it for however you want. If you want to get angry at people go right ahead but if you know you can also use it to learn about you know or, or almost any topic under the sun there's an account on there for it which is uh fascinating exactly and and the
good part about this is it allows us to overcome and exit, which is a popular word being used right now. It allows you to exit from institutions of information that are normally available to us because as we're increasingly learning, mainstream sources of information are not always correct about everything. In fact, they're almost never correct. And it's like, otherwise, without social media, if you wanted access to people who actually knew about the topics that you want to learn about and not just like the whitewashed fake news history of the topics, like you would have to do a lot of digging on your own. But now with social media, you can immediately connect to experts who've been learning about something for 10 years and they can tell you. Well, it's, like, and it's not just that, right? It's everyone has sort of become their own for sort of meta journalism, right? Which is the, some average person in uh, can start a Twitter account or you know that you don't have to go through the traditional institutions in order to have a following on a topic mm -hmm. that you find important, right? It doesn't. It doesn't have to be political, but yeah. uh, throughout history, all almost everything went through sort of centralized vectors of information, whether it was newspapers or academia or whatever, or book publishing, and in order to get uh, sort of well known, you had to go through the gatekeepers, right? And sort of Twitter decentralize the ability to build your own audience and and i think that's a mean? lot better because like then you can actually judge on merit like yeah good ideas. yeah good ideas well well not necessarily good ideas but they're captivating ideas that will spread more quickly yeah well and i mean the downside of it is that there's well i guess the fake news side right which is uh, there's a lot of people, or I would say the majority of people, you know, are not able to think and sort of, it, I, I used to think that, you know, the best ideas will win. It's like, well, not always, right? The, that's what, what I find interesting on Twitter, which is you can be correct and then, or you can have two opposing opinions. One can be correct or two opposing uh, statements. One can be correct, one can be incorrect, and one can have 10,000 likes and one can have 50. And people yeah. are now judging the validity of statements based on likes, right? Yeah, which so is, uh, that's the basic flaw of democracy, which is that, you know, one intelligent person can be outruled by 10 people who think they're right, but they're actually wrong. That's, that's the basic flaw of democracy is that, like, if there's one person who is correct, it, it doesn't necessarily mean everybody's going to think that they're correct, because most people are not run by logic like logic is not the way that our brain is made to think our brain is made to think in stories interesting that you say that because uh, one of the things that uh because I, I mean first thing that there's probably one of the most famous lines in western culture which is the that built the enlightenment is even if i'm in a minority of one the truth is the truth right which is mm -hmm. it doesn't matter that a hundred people say that I'm wrong, even if I'm correct, it, it, I'm correct. And that's sort of the difference between perception and reality. And yeah. what I find interesting is people try are now trying to sort of impose the, or propaganda is sort of the ability or the attempt to impose reality on something that isn't true, or they sort of trying to change someone's reality. I had a, I had a really good tweet on this, uh, yesterday which is 
the ability to filter your perception of reality is the greatest show of raw power anyone can ever have over you. And that's sort of the essence of propaganda, which is, or at least in my opinion, which is the ability to to completely change how your brain works or your your filtering of reality. And um, I find that fascinating with Twitter, which is that both the, the people that you interact with and the platform itself has this ability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if it helps or hurts the ability to think critically, but hmm, what do you think? Hmm. Uh, what do you mean by the platform has the ability to help you change your perception of reality? Well, the platform is able to show you uh, either what you curate or what they push you, right? So if you wanted to see um, uh, a version of, of uh, events or a version of facts, the platform can push that on you or you can create that within the platform. Right, yes. So that I think is the cure for propaganda. Maybe it is, I'm not sure. Because on the one hand, you can have people curate so that they can see the version of events in a way that they're comfortable with or that they already like have it in their mind, they've already come to the answer and they don't wanna see anything that opposes that answer. Um, So in that sense, it would be harmful, but in the opposite way, it would be good because you can at least have some control over the information that you're seeing. And it's not from, it's it's not a perception that's a multi-billion dollar company or like establishment wants you to see the, the version of events. For example, like, if I didn't have Twitter, if I didn't have any social media and I saw all of the world events unfolding in the past year through the news only, I would completely believe everything that I was seeing and I would buy into it. And perhaps like buying into it, it would harm me a lot because uh, there are some, you make decisions based on how you perceive reality. And if you perceive reality in the wrong way, you might, like that is not close to what it actually is, you might make bad decisions that could harm you. So if you had the perception of reality, for example, that um, like that, I'm trying to think of something useful as an example, um, that everybody actually needs to stay six feet apart and the masks help a lot for stopping the infection rates and being near people could kill them. Like you would, if you heard only that version of events, you would totally believe it and make decisions based on that and think everybody who is against it is evil. But if you actually read another version of events, if you actually go into read the literature that's coming out frequently about this, you would learn like, it's not at all how it seems to be, how they're portraying it. For example, the hospitals are not bursting. It's like at the same level of capacity as it was for 20 years around this time period. Um, It's just interesting, like how social media allows you to view reality um, in in a different way than how the news media wants you to see reality. Uh, which one do you think would be more accurate? Because a lot of people uh, say that um, social media now distorts reality, right? Which is, 
a whole bunch of people, like the um, uh, the whole thing with what's happened with Trump and all the rest of it, they, were, they say that the methodology, the social media has crafted a methodology that has allowed people to almost make a false reality. So it's sort of, and unless you yeah. unless you truly understand first principles, it's difficult for the vast majority of the population to know what is true and what isn't. I think there's a great burden being placed on people, to be honest, for critical thinking that they shouldn't have to be able to do in order to live their normal lives. Yeah. And I think it's because the mainstream establishment does not have our best interests in mind when they're making these decisions. In what way would you, would you, do you mean by that? Um, so when I'm thinking over this past year with COVID specifically, like, there were so many laws being put in place that were not exactly logical. If we, if they were, if you were looking at the laws from the framework of does it actually help people stay healthier and avoid sickness, then these laws certainly were not functioning from that respect. But if you were looking at it from the point of view, do these laws help people, um, help the people in power have more control over people's lives, and does it permit the people who are making money to keep making money, then these laws are perfectly logical. Right. Well, the, the one thing that um, I always thought with the laws, which is the big problem that government itself has is the concept of um, there's maximum consequences for being incorrect and no consequence, like, the asymmetry between the consequences was was so pronounced, in which they bear they bore none of the the responsibility, but all of the consequences. Which is, if masks had a 0.001 percent use rate or uh, or usage rate, right? Which is, there's only one in ten thousand people that it's actually going to benefit. But if you mandate everyone to use it and when that person doesn't die, right, that they don't go on the news. And mm -hmm. if they sort of say, well, the, the whole argument was if one, if it saves one person, then it's worth it. Well, you know, sort of how do you argue with if it saves what if, you know, if lockdown so, save one person, is it worth it? Then because they're not doing the cost side, because they mostly, are exactly like the costs of the lockdown the costs of masks of vaccines like there are very real costs and they're reported by a variety of scientific journals but they're largely ignored for some reason which makes me think that it's more that the government feels responsible for every single person that they need to be able to help them certain like not die but i think that's unrealistic yeah well in um because I come from a, the sort of business side or in terms of knowledge. And in the business side, it's called CYA, which is cover your ass, which is it, people will don't want to make any mistakes in which if one mistake is made or if you don't go to the most extreme and mm -hmm. something goes wrong, you'll be held 100% liable. And right. if you don't have any costs or negative consequences imposed, so if you're the head of a city right or if you're the you know head of a state or or country or whatever and you don't uh, do 
this methodology and people die, right. they can hold you responsible. But if you do do it, there's no, there's nothing that, that you're not held yeah. personally, so financially responsible. Sorry. So like if they're doing the lockdown, like as a cautious thing, like the most strict lockdown that they can, and it's to, it's, a, it's to cover their ass so that they don't die. I mean, they don't get blamed for the deaths that would, that might result if they didn't do this extreme measure. I but think not, like they're, not, but then at the same time, they're ignoring the deaths and the costs that people incur because of these extreme lockdowns. And also they're ignoring the fact that um, I think there's just not enough people who understand or there's many people who take for granted that human rights are like a privilege that was given to them and can be taken away. Interesting you say a privilege uh, because in the West, right, up until I think very recently, it was sort of, I wouldn't say well known, but uh, more taken for granted, but we sort of have a, an understanding of, uh, I would say certain inalienable rights, which is you sort of have at least some form of self-ownership, you know, things like innocent before proven guilty, all these sort of things that we took for granted, I guess now we took for granted, and that yeah. we we assume that the government wouldn't violate because that's been always been the foundation between the government well, and the that citizens. Well, that's an excuse to violate them. That's the thing. But hmm. the, like human rights are not something that you look. The reason why I say they're privileges and not inalienable rights is because if it were truly an inalienable right, no one could take it away from you and no one could give it to you. Like, yeah, that's, you know a, I mean? that's a fantastic way of putting it. But um, that what's when it comes to shove and things are just inconvenient, mm -hmm. too inconvenient for you to have your rights, then they were never your rights in the first place. And yeah, exactly. they were privileges and somebody else was fighting and preserving them for you. And as soon as those people, because their allegiance is not to you, they're to someone who's more powerful as soon as those people decide that this is inconvenient to preserve this person's privilege, they are taken away. Yeah, so that's sort of why, um, why I like to talk about power, which is, it's a topic that it's, um, Marcus, uh, corporate Mark is a great uh, Twitter handle for this, but it's why I like talking about it, which is, it's, most people have no idea how the real world works, which is, unless you can physically or sort of, I guess, in the new world, technologically impose your will on someone, right? Your rights mean nothing, right? And raw power is the how the real world works. And uh, in the vast majority of the world, the, the most people are not nice, right? In the, vast, in the vast majority of the world, people operate on raw power and, you know, sort of guns, and violence, you know, and, and that's just how, how most things go. And only in the West is, is this sort of the exception, not the rule. And it's people know, it, yeah. sorry, go ahead. It, it's because I think in the West, people are more, in, have become more entitled with, with regards to these rights. And they don't realize like somebody else has to pay or work to keep them for you. I've written about this in my um, essay, Violence and the Nature of Power. It's already on my Substack. Yeah, so, no, it was, a, it was a good article. That's why, that's why I wanted to talk about it. Um, 
for example, today, a private business owner can't keep their doors open because the government said so. And if they open their doors, they'll get fined, they'll get even shut down. But a private business, another private business can kick anybody off of their platform because they said so. And no one can do anything about it. So. Yeah, it's interesting it's that, um, that people are now openly holding that what you know what George Orwell used to put the two opposing opinions at the same time which is Double. they're able yeah was it, it it's it, they're able to because it's people have a strange uh misunderstanding of how this happens which is they think well how can one person believe that you have uh but what is it or what it share a platform as a private company they can do whatever they want and then at the same, in the second sentence, they say, well, it's a private business. They have to follow these rules, right? Which is- And they the, might say it's because the private business being open is causing harm to other people. And that's why the government is allowed to close it. And like kicking somebody off of Twitter is not anything like, like that because it's not hurting anyone. But I think it's very different because the research does not show that like, keeping personal care salons, for example, open actually does increase the infection rate. Like there's so much science that contradicts many of the, the logic behind these COVID laws, but people who blindly believe everything about like, you know, these COVID laws being logical, they like wholeheartedly support them. And the cognitive dissonance, like if somebody is a good critical thinker and is an intelligent person, but they've bought into the double think, um, they would face some cognitive dissonance by holding these two views simultaneously. And this anxiety, sometimes people assuage it just by not thinking about it too much. Yeah, I mean, in terms of evidence, there was um, a great article posted on uh, Zero Hedge, uh, I think it was yesterday or today, which was um, the Stanford peer-reviewed study on lockdowns. And they found mm -hmm. it was wholly ineffective. Um, yes, I read that they did a whole meta-analysis of it. And, the Lancet um, published something similar in October of 2020, and they compared all of the countries controlling for population density, um, as well as compliance to the lockdown measures in each country. And they found that lock severity of lockdown was not correlated at all to infection or death rates from COVID. And in fact, severity of lockdown was as correlated to infection rates as like, um, I think it was like humidity levels in the air. Interesting. Interesting. So it was, and the Lancet, like a pretty big deal. I think Nature also published something similar. Um, there are so many articles coming out every day that are contradicting the very things that people are saying, people who say science is real or like you're anti-science for not wanting to wear a mask. Yeah, like, the, it's, the, it's, I, I find most people who say that, uh, or mo most people sort of, have now devolved into just extreme tribalism in terms mm -hmm. of the ideologies as soon as they have one side or the other. And the most people I, I find almost impossible to have uh, a sort of rational discourse with because as soon as you sort of challenge an idea, they've, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say can argue, but they've sort of got a pre-programming that it requires an entirely different skill set 
to dismantle than sort of evidence or logic. And while, while I'm good at that, it's, um, it's not my, 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 not my forte, right? And it's not what you'd hope uh, that kind of discussion to go to, right? Which is, I shouldn't have to, uh, you know, if someone wants to have a discussion about a topic of, you know, whether it be political or, you know, science-based, you should use the, um, the methodology of science to, to sort of discuss science, but most people seem to be incapable of that uh, nowadays, you know what I mean? And it, it's very draining, to be honest, to talk to people who are at this point in my life, like it's extremely draining for me to talk to people who are so far away from the logic that I've used to understand many of the important topics of life in general. And because they, it, it's just exhausting. I think that's the best that I can say, like to explain everything, to realize like how far gone they are and to just like, it's never productive for me because it's just like going all the way back to the start. And that's why I don't really like the idea that people say you shouldn't be in your echo chamber. You shouldn't, you should listen to people with opposite opinions. Like that does not make sense to me because it's honestly just like, like the guy who was right, for example, he, he was right about something. He has to be then forced to talk to 10 other people who are wrong. Like yeah, it's the, it's, it's, the, um, it's, it's the Galileo quote when he was um, yeah, like under, under trial. Yeah, so much time talking to people who are wrong. He ends up like constantly defending himself and never actually is able to delve into questions and ideas that he actually cares to learn more about or develop. So that's why it's just useless for me to talk to certain kinds of people. And it's definitely limited the types of people that I allow into my life and allow into my discourse. And perhaps this causes the curation effect that you talked about before that alters your perception of reality. But right. honestly, like, I think the humility and the demand for humility from every single person is like overrated because sometimes when you know something is right, you've, you've explored it well, you've researched it well, like to go back and talk to someone who hasn't done that work and explain to them everything that you've done is extremely like it's a really big demand on your time and energy. Yeah, I think exhausting is a very interesting way to uh, to put it, right? Which is, I don't think you're you are alone in the um, in that sort of way to think okay. about the the um, I guess I wouldn't say the polarization, but the sort of the the sort of situation that we're in, where there's sort of two or three groups which have very polarizing different mm -hmm. sort of extremely uh, on sort of one side or the other of ideological issues and they sort of and I think a lot of people uh, are somewhat exhausted you can see it in the way people are writing the people mm -hmm. are not especially in the last four years like everything sort of dialed up to 12 every day, especially on Twitter, mm -hmm. I could see I could see it every day. Um, I think people are getting exhausted over politics. Maybe that's just my, my sort of curated view, which is sort of its own weird thing to see, which is the way in which I have sort of curate, I try to curate my sort of my way in which I see things is I try and see as much of every side as possible 
but I have my own opinions, but I like to see what everyone's saying. But Do I don't know if that's, like, sorry. Like, I, I understand what you mean, but sometimes you see the same mistake in logic over and over again being rehashed and rewritten. And it's just like annoying, to be honest, to see it. And you, at that point, you don't even want to correct it. You just make a joke about it with your friend and then you move on. Like, oh, well, I, um, yeah, I mean, I see this all the time, right? Which is because, but I guess I'm in a unique position because, I mean, because we're in software and data, it's, um, it's that sort of my, my skill set where most people mm. don't have that kind of extreme or not forced to develop that kind of an extreme uh, way of thinking and that to be uh, as good at it. And so I, I will, I'll notice it, but I, I, I try not to engage unless I find it instructive to the people that follow. So if I find that, yeah. you know, I see this mistake and I think people can, can learn from it, then I'll, I'll post about it. But um, I, I don't know, I sort of, I've sort of become well, like a duck in the rain, right? Which is, I see all the nonsense and I can't correct everything. So I sort of, I, as long as, you know, I'm, I don't know, it's a, it's a strange. Otherwise strange you would complete yourself. Yeah, so like you can't. Example, like, I think we were talking about this before was like dancing with the devil. The devil also dances with you. Um, I went through this stage when I was thinking about feminism, I was looking at ideas to write, like to express my like ideas about feminism and why they are what they are. And I started following some feminist pages and I could see like, okay, this is fine because I can find the mistakes in their thinking or in their logic and this is how I would correct it. But the more I went through it, the more frustrated I would get. And what eventually happened is like, I was no longer the driver of my thoughts. My thoughts were always in response to right. like these, these other politics. And I think that's not very healthy to always be in, in response. I think as human beings, we're healthiest when we're pushing ourselves forward, when we're driving ourselves and expressing ourselves. When we live yes. in response, it's very, like it's very exhausting. It's very frustrating. You're always in this submissive role for your own spirit. No, I 100% agree. I think there's, there's a, a certainly a place for explanation. Um, I I did it. I can't remember when I did it, but I did a very good um, sort of thread where I explained that it's the culture's job to explain questions that people have uh, for the culture itself, right? If you know, if we do things this way, and people or a child asks, you know, why do we do it this way? It's up to the culture to explain look there's a reason for us to do it this way mm -hmm. but the problem with the new sort of political systems like feminism is it's not a questioning ideology it's an inverted ideal ideology that's what why mm -hmm. i what, what i talk about inversion theory sort of fem or that's sort of one of my main theories is feminism is the inversion of natural or it's the application of the inversion of natural uh, existence applied to women. And what I mean by that is women uh, have an, uh, I, I guess you could say the, the hypergamous uh, ideal uh, idea of women, which is they, the, or the natural side would be, they 
try to get the best guy they can that they think they're going to have a you know productive healthy stable relationship with it to have kids with right and the way in which they get that is through or i guess the traditional understanding of it would be through health beauty um uh study that kind of thing right or mm-hmm. you know art uh, uh creation that kind of thing and the sort of male version is the acquisition of resources status that kind of thing right uh physical prowess that kind of thing and feminism is sort of the application of the male advancement into uh on the female ideology or the female psyche and so like i'm uh from share or something it's like i'm not going to marry a rich man i'm going to become a rich man and that's actually very telling like the the exact idea you're talking about yeah and so that's the female version and the male version is the sort of uh where so i wouldn't say the beta but it's sort of the incel beta version where they're sort of applied the female uh concept of existence which is i should have intrinsic value and people should like me for me um and you know the reason i, I you know i should you know the the i you know there was a, a good Thing with incels co I, mean, I don't know if you know that twitter account but um he embodies it perfectly which is um i should be you know i should have a girlfriend because uh I, you know, i'm important right or you know, every guy should have something right and that entitlement is okay if you're a female because females have natural fertility but it doesn't work mm-hmm. for men and i don't think people um it's the sort of requiring or the wanting to believe in a disbelief and that's Mm -hmm. sort of where it is where it's the inversion of both sides which is the male is sort of taken on the female and the female taken on the male you know what I mean yeah yeah and it kind of just creates an androgynous blob in between yeah 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 which kills all romance which requires polarity What's interesting though, is everyone thinks this is some new ph- phenomenon, right? But this is not a new thing. I was, um, I was reading about the, one of the sieges in, uh, or the death of the Byzantine empire. And when, um, when they surrendered to Mehmet the second, which is the end of the Byzantine empire, there's a famous thing, which sort of went unnoticed and I noticed it and I, I was like, oh, that's sort of fascinating, which is, he said in his um, surrender conference that my, the women in my city have become men and the men become women. And I think that's sort of roughly what's happened here, or I guess in a lot of places in the West. So I don't think this is sort of a unique thing to Western or the, like what we have now. I think it's happened. I think it's a natural ability in human nature that um, that's happened many times before. I think it happens whenever we become really out of touch with nature. Um, I think Camille Paglia has wrote extensively on this, that whenever human beings come close to nature, they see how much society was protecting them from its realities, which are really harsh, which can be very harsh. That like the biological imperatives do become important again, that you do have to think about realistically, what are your strengths and weaknesses and work together in that way. like. I think, yeah, for example, like, um, yeah, that's the best way that I can put it. It's just that w- the more a society becomes out of touch with nature, the more it 
like adopts liberal values. And that signals to me that liberal values are not based in reality, but they're based in constructed um, societies that permit people to live in the dreamland of disbelief. Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a belief in, uh, they don't believe in reality. Their ideology is, um, is something that can only come out of an unreality, which is, I explained the sort of the three pillars of the ideology or what I call the modern West, right? Which is the uh, equality of outcome, meaning everyone should have the same or relatively the same outcome as everybody else. And that can only occur when a society is so wealthy that we can't actually see the differences between uh, individual capability. And that can only come from sort of a, a true delusion in human disparity in human nature. Exactly. And the the second part of the of their their ideology is what I call a perception of finite wealth, but a belief in infinite resources. And what I mean mm -hmm. by that is, if you listen to how they talk about rich people, they'll say, you know, Jeff Bezos has a hundred billion dollars. And if I had a hundred billion dollars, this is what I would do with it, right? And they say, well, no, no person should have a billion dollars because in order to have a billion dollars, he must have taken that billion dollars from someone else. And this is um, a, a belief that you can't actually create wealth. And it's a structural misunderstanding of how society both functions and, and can actually uh, yeah. create wealth, right? You know what I mean? So wealth can be the, there's, there's two sort of, arguments one is you can't create wealth and one is wealth can be created and the mm -hmm. sort of way in which you uh, sort of understand who's correct is you say well what is wealth well wealth is the ability to consume um products well how do you know i guess you could say that is a base definition of how wealth is the ability to yeah maximally like consume you can exchange for products and services like that's what wealth is yeah, and it's sort of, you know, if I plant an apple tree and it costs me $10 to, to buy the tree and it makes me $20 worth of apples, right? I've made mm -hmm. $10 worth of value and the money is just the, is the tokens that we assign on the value created and yes. people m mistake the tokens for the value. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, that's the one side, but the second. I think the misunderstanding of, uh, wealth that you were talking that you're referring to that people have, I think it comes from the ideas of salaries rather than businesses. So if people have this idea that you work for some place and they just give you money for working there, I think people don't understand where that money is coming from and what it means. Like it's not about you personally; it's about you know the wealth that you create with your work. You know, but someone who starts a business, someone who understands how that business works, I think they have a better idea of what exactly wealth is and where it comes from. And then they understand that they can create it. A yeah, lot absolutely. Better. But so, there's also like, that's where, like, people who are working. Like, I think that's why a lot of younger people don't understand wealth properly. Like, I think that any young person who starts their own business will understand wealth a lot better and will be less likely to be to to say things like uh no one should have a billion dollars yeah it's um 
it's a fun yeah, I, I find it a fundamental sort of misunderstanding of how the world works but it's it's also the same in economics but economics is an entirely different topic but well, um, there's also like the idea of that i've heard said before that people should get um like a bigger slice of the pie or everyone should get an equal slice of the pie but like they're not understanding like where who made that pie like where did it come from you know yeah 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 and so yeah the other side of that which is something that people don't quite know what i meant i said a couple of people didn't understand what i meant which is a belief in infinite resources is that this is the whole uh, idea of everyone should have a house and ever like not everyone should have, but everyone should have you know a big you know safe healthy house and everyone should have food like all you know the best food and all this kind of stuff it's like well resources don't just appear right people say you know i want universal health care and all this kind of stuff it's like that when you say these kind of things it sounds good but you need to understand that resources don't just appear right yeah. and there's a mechanism and there's a methodology for how these things are, uh, come into being and exactly. uh, but they think that because they don't understand the mechanism to how things uh, arise they see it sort of like if you go to the supermarket and you don't understand the complex sort of background logistics, it looks like a magic show, right? It's like, how mm -hmm. does all these fruits and vegetables and meats and fishes and cans and like, it's sort of like, you, it's a complete warping of reality for someone who, ha if you just sort of, if you don't understand the principles behind it, it looks yeah. Like, and it's like, it never ends, right? Every time I go there, no matter what's happened, there's always food, right? And exactly. it doesn't, it, it looks like there's a, a never ending supply of resources to someone who doesn't understand it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I, I think like, for example, with a grocery store example, when people uh, live in that kind of world, they don't understand where all of their food comes from they don't understand, for example, the slave labor that allows things in Walmart and dollar store to be so cheap. Like, I think in the, that was, uh, I was, I watched this documentary one time when I was at an impressionable age about where our clothes come from. It was about fast fashion and it was like an exploration of the factory conditions um, and sweatshops in Bangladesh and Nepal. And it just horrified me that this stuff was happening and it's legal. And like, that's why I could buy a sweater for $20. Like it was horrifying. Um, and I think then I realized like, this is probably happening for every single product that we buy in the West. Like that's why these prices can be so low. It's like somebody else is paying the cost, which is yeah, well if, that, if that person who was working in the factories to make those clothes, or pick those vegetables or raise those animals, if they were being paid fairly, if they were being taken care, if they were not being abused and like forced into this kind of situation, like everything would cost a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, like, um, the interesting thing- It just comes thing back to like the same idea of like living wage. I was thinking about it and these ideas are not as black and white as we, want them to be because if we look at it from a cold capitalist perspective that child who's paid seven cents an hour to make those sweaters like he has to because that's 
you know, it's like the company says you're getting paid for the value that they create that, that you create. And then the company kind of arbitrates that the value the child is creating is only seven cents per hour. But really like that sweater, if it's being sold for $20, they're thinking that, you know, they're all, they, as the owners of this company, they're doing more work. The marketing people are doing more work so they can take more of the $20 from each sweater than the person who's making it. So when we say things like you're getting paid for the value that you create, like what that value is, is largely arbitrary. Like I could easily sit here and say that the child who's making the sweater in the first place is creating the most value and people doing the marketing and people owning the factories are, should take less money from all of this operation. Well, this is um, something that uh, I found like, cause um, a guy called, I don't know if you know him, Naval, he, um, yeah. he writes about this, which is the, the person who works the hardest is not the person who works the best, right? Which is the yeah. difference is, is that the person making the sweater can only make one sweater at a time, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm making, you know, a, a, a t-shirt, it require it might take me, let's say 30 minutes to make a t-shirt. I can only make two t-shirts an hour. But in terms of leverage, right? If I'm selling t-shirts and I use Google uh, uh, pay-per-click and I use Facebook ads and whatever else, right? And I and using the power of technology, I can leverage my uh, my time and sell a hundred thousand t-shirts in one hour, right? I understand that logistically, but I have to like, this is why I kind of sit in the middle uh, of like left and right. Like, I don't think either side is completely correct on these issues um, because even though, while that may be true that you, like one person can do more work per hour, like that actually like produces more money. Um, we can, we have to think of a way out of this system because it's, it still matters that some people in the world are being abused like this. And I think the solution to this is that, you know, every country or every village should have their own businesses. It shouldn't be, I think if franchises ended, um, it would be a lot of good for humanity. Well, the, the, there is some sort of, because I think there's, with the thing with franchises is it gives a lot of stability and predictability to both the customers and the business owners, right? Which is if you go to whichever country you want to go to and you go and you see a McDonald's, you know for sure that there's going to be at least some level of kind of the kind of food that you're going to know, right? You're going to get be able to get yeah, like... Yeah, that's just a matter of comfort. That doesn't actually matter. Like, that's just like cushy comforts of modernity that we want. Like, oh, I just want my subway to always look the same exact way. I can't <laughs> go to a different village. How dare they give me a different sandwich in this different village that I'm not used to with like different kinds of cookies. Like, that's just yeah, like... Yeah pushy like argument that it, and you know what like that's not worth slave labor for people to have the same exact thing wherever they go and and it also is damaging to cultures because when everything is the same everywhere you go it doesn't encourage individual craftsmanship like artisanry like human spirit of creation if everything is the same in every single city around the world 
Like, what is the point? Yeah, and, well, that's um, rise is because cultures arise because we didn't have franchises. If you wanted a pair of shoes or a dress when you're in Bulgaria, you had to get it however they were made in your local city. But then if you moved to Poland, you couldn't get that same exact thing in Poland. You had to get a different type of dress and shoes when you were there. And because those people can't ship to each other, they can't ship worldwide, people in the local places preserve their own culture, their own craftsmanship. And, and I think it gave them a lot more freedom too, because like I, I read, like William Blake is the best resource for these kinds of ideas. But he said like, when you're creating something, you put a piece of your soul inside. Like it actually is like that. Like anybody who creates anything, who has any kind of craftsmanship <laughs> hobby, they'll realize like how amazing it is a feeling to create something of your own that is used by somebody else. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so interesting about the, um, the whole diversity idea, right? Which is there's, or sort of why I, I never really liked the idea of cultural diversity, which is if everyone is mixed together, then then nothing is unique, right? Which is, that that's one thing I, I never really understood, which is if everyone becomes 100% the same as everybody else, then you sort of just get a mixture of just everyone, everyone is just bland and the sort of the same, right? Which is, there's no difference between, if there's no difference between Prague and Romania, right? Or there's no difference between London and New York. Right, there's, well, there's no point in going to one and not the other. Like, there's no point in going to both if, you know, if they're both mm. the same, you know what I mean? There's a really good quote that I read from G.K. Chesterton. Um, it, it was in his essay, The Great Dickens Characters. So I, I can read that now because it's exactly what your point is. He says, it is a great mistake to suppose that love unites and unifies men. Love diversifies because love is directed toward individuality. The thing that really unites men and makes them like each other is hatred. Thus, for instance, the more modern nations detest each other, the more meekly they follow each other. For all competition is in its nature only a furious mimetic plagiarism. As competition always means similarity, it is equally true that similarity always means inequality. If everything is trying to be green, some things will be more green than others, but there is an immoral and indestructible equality between green and red. So he was kind Amazing. of going toward the same idea that if we try to have a melting pot or a multiculturalism, like everything just becomes the same and you're destroying like the idiosyncrasies between all of the diverse aspects, the cultures. People. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like if I go to China, I want to experience China. I don't want to experience the sort of Americanized version of China or the, you know, the European version of like, I don't want to see, you know what I mean? Does, does that make sense? Level, like why we have these desires is because when we see things that are made by people instead of by factories, factories are the only way to accomplish the similarity that you're talking about. And when we see things that are made by a human being, we connect with it better. And I think there is a spiritual aspect to this that I don't yet know how to express. When you see something that's handmade and made really well, it does evoke different feelings than if you see well, something that's made by Ikea. The, the problem with, um, with 
the sort of handmade thing is it's it's almost impossible to do at scale right which is yeah. if you have you know 10 million people and 10 million people need a house right it's impossible to have you know that sort of impossible to scale it but you're assuming that we need to scale it at all so for example if one person knows how to build a house in a really good way then he wants to scale it to the whole world that would be impossible for him to do without automation yeah. But he, that is assuming that the, whole, the rest of the world can't also learn the same skill. You know, if you have 100 people in one city that and each person knows how to do something different, like you can't just assume that they, all of them need to scale it for the whole world. The people in the next city can also do the same thing just in a different way. Well, that was the, um, I, I guess this is an interesting, I wouldn't say disagreement, but somewhere where I'm not quite sure that I, I agree because the the whole reason that we're able to improve our sort of standard of living is because we can what well, we can have a hundred people do let's say it takes a hundred people to dig a ditch and we can have one person dig a ditch well now those 99 people can go do something else right and if you have one person that can make a house or you know if you have 10 people in a factory that can make something instead of one person that can make a hundred instead of one person making one at a time you're now producing 10 times or 100 times the amount of units um, and what people would do with the free time that they get from not having to engage in any of these activities that factories do for them they watch netflix and get depressed <laughs> and they They're look for hobbies where in these hobbies, again, they're trying to make something. If you've noticed that right. in the last year, they're trying to bake cakes. They're trying to learn how to crochet. They're trying to like, you know, they're embroidering things. Those are the hobbies that I saw in the past year. People don't know what to do with their free time. Like all the chores that we've replaced have been replaced with like anxiety and spiritual malaise. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know if well, not materialism. Well, I don't know if materialism will actually solve that. I think that's more of a idea, well, sort of almost religious, but sort of philosophical issue. Not, um, not, not materialistic. You, you know what I mean? That's not something you can solve by sort of ratchet. Oh, can you hear me? Hello. Yeah, I can hear you now. Oh, sorry. That's sort of something. Yeah, yeah. Can he? Mm -hmm. Can you not hear me? Is it I can internet? hear you. Oh, okay, good. I was gonna say that's not something that you can solve by ratcheting up and down people's material, as sort of how much that how much resources they have, right? So whether someone has a ten thousand dollar car or a fifty thousand dollar car or five cars, right? That's not going to change their the individual sort of spirit i guess maybe but the the spiritual side won't be changed by the material side i guess what i'm trying to say is like how people spend their time because yeah. you were saying that it's important to scale the operations by which we make material objects and services um, because it affords people more free time to do other things. And I was, and my argument is that 
when we give people all this extra free time, they don't, it's not necessarily good for them. And when people are engaged in doing things that produce useful objects or services for their community, they are much happier. Okay, but the, if you were to say that as a, as a, as a position, wouldn't you want to give people the most amount of time and resources for them to be able to do that, right? Which would be scale, right? Which is there's, there's certainly a place for that kind of thing. And I think that's sort of the goal of what everyone tries to have, but the only way to achieve that is through at least a surplus of, of existing resources, right? You can't have that kind of leisure when people are living subsistence, uh, sort of subsistence level living, right? So no one in Venezuela is going to be considering that as a as a position because most of them are starving. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's where, like, I think the like argument kind of becomes circular because the re like why is it that some people in the world are able to have all of these luxuries where they can be bored all day? And why is it that other people in the world are starving no matter how hardworking they are or intelligent? Yeah. Like that's a very big question. And I think like if, and like my basic position is that if people want to scale their operations but they're doing so at the cost of like, uh, while I said human rights are privileges I do think they're still like moral, like morally correct imperatives that we should try to uphold as best as we can. Like if you are like you know using slave labor to scale your business to the whole world like i i still don't think that's the right thing to do yeah no i, I would agree with that interesting yeah the um... yeah but the question is still like i i still don't know the answer to that question like why some people in the world have boredom and some people just have starvation it's um well, that's to do with uh, scale, right? Which is purely scale, which is if you're able to produce enough uh, value um, that, that people are willing to pay for, then you can, you sort of have excess, as soon as it goes above subsistence, you, so you then you sort of get to excess wealth or I guess excess resources above what you need to consume sort of to, to survive which is sort of the difference between the West and the, I guess the rest until sort of very recently, the West was a was leap years ahead of everybody else, right? And a sort of, well, why was the West so successful? Because the West sort of understood both capital and private property were the engine behind uh, material, uh, I wonder, how do you say it? material advancement or sort of material, material accumulation? Success. Yeah, material success, right? Which is the, there's a methodology to becoming rich as a society and that's just sort of required. And mm. what, um, and a few countries have copied it, right? So uh, most countries sort of have figured this out, which is, you know, China, uh, South Korea, Japan, or Japan maybe, but the, a lot of countries have figured this out. So it's not like a, a massive secret now, but uh, up until very recently, it kind of was, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
but um, yeah, but it's interesting with the with the um, with the free time thing, because what's another major thing, which is, I guess, how people are spending their free time is this. There seems to be such a surplus of free time, that especially like uh, with I don't know, because you see with what's going on with uh, video games and sports and all this kind of thing, people seem to have almost too much <laughs> i had too much but there seems to be so much free time that people have i don't know if it's destructive or if they don't uh, we don't have methodologies of channeling it i think it's philosophical but i i understand what you mean you know uh i think every person is not the same like there are some people who even when they have free time like they're using it in really creative amazing ways and they're happy because they can, like, they're happy with their free time. Like they make their lives better. They become richer or they do creative things or, you know, they're building their families or nurturing people. But I think some people, when they're bored, they don't have that energy. They just turn to hedonism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like really hard to say that it would be bad for everyone like whenever you're generalizing to the whole population, of course, it's going to be true. But generally speaking, I think I, yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, so the, what's interesting um, about the, um, the, what we were talking about earlier was um, when you generalize for the population, you sort of remove the individual uh, brilliance that can come out right and I think that sort of because when everyone wants everyone to be the equal and the same you don't get the uniqueness that can come out of that and I think that's where um, the sort of minimalism and what you were talking about the the vilification of, of beauty in modern society I think that's might be one of the foundations of it I wanted to hear your um because you had some great thoughts on uh, on those on those topics. Yeah, it's this weird trend that I'm seeing recently, like, or I guess just in my generation, that everybody wants to be a minimalist and have, like, I don't know. When people talk about the aesthetics that they like, it's always um, very minimal things, very IKEA furniture, very few things in your house, and like the things that people are not creating anymore is like very opulent, beautiful, decadent, like um, Baroque style pieces. Right. Like it's very, like, I, I guess it could also be like a wealth thing, but there are many like very wealthy people. I was just like watching this TV show in the summer with my family and it was like uh, a show about selling houses. Don't laugh at me. And it was all I of these like sometimes. <laughs> extremely wealthy, like LA people who are buying multi-million dollar houses and the houses were so boring and bland and like boxy. And there's no like, and I was like, they can definitely afford something that will look like, like an, you know, like a Baroque architecture fireplace with like all kinds of carvings on it and like you know what I'm talking about 
yeah, yeah. Like, they can definitely afford that but for some reason everything is like so empty and stripped and just way too clean you know there's no well it's a like, form of it's the art that that is the it's the modern art sort of version of architecture which is the form less is the form right it's sort of yeah the, and it's kind of like it reminds you that there's maybe because it it's disturbing to me because it makes you think that there was never a human being there like it's so sanitized of life <laughs> because when you see a work of art you you know that it's like a sign of humanity yeah we excited when we see it well so. what's interesting about those um those places is the the houses that are, are sort of soulless but then they'll spend millions of dollars on the same type of artwork that goes up on those properties and the artwork is uh, is just as bad right the exactly <laughs> it's horrible the, um, um, and i wonder like doesn't it make you depressed to be there like to look around and just see sharp edges and like clean well, that's, lines that's the um that's what i would call the internalization of of let of i wouldn't say left-wing but modern western ideology which is if you and internalize you know sorry like i was about to make the point that people still make pilgrimages to all of these places in, around the world that do have this kind of opulence and decadence and art like for example saint petersburg amsterdam paris all of these like why they're so attractive to people is because when people walk into a beautiful cathedral with lots of amazing paintings on the ceiling and the walls and like, or even like a mosque somewhere or like the Hagia Sophia, like why people feel like a pull to go to these places, whether or not they're religious is because they feel alive when they're there. It does something to your spirit. Yeah, absolutely. What's interesting is um, I saw a, I saw a really good part of a tweet from one of the architecture um, Twitter accounts, which is they would post the, the picture of the, of the beautiful buildings. And then right mm -hmm. behind it was how the people are actually living. And it was completely the opposite. And it was like, the beautiful buildings are just for the tourists now. The, the way mm -hmm. in which the culture is actually living is, is the, the sort of bland modern art uh, everyone's the same everything's a square everything's gray and the the beautiful buildings are purely for tourist attractions and i found that kind of sad it is sad and it's like the truth is right in front of your eyes like why does something become a tourist attraction it has to have some kind of beauty some like captivating quality that makes people feel more alive when they see it like why are people attracted to niagara falls for example yeah it's just beautiful that's why or like yeah uh there's this like castle on um on the beaches like northern side of france and people like make special trips to go there they're <laughs> so excited by it like yeah. um it, it's like there's a reason why these are tourist spots and it's so sad that they're just relegated to this occasional part of our life rather than every day yeah, it's um, interesting that we, especially in the way they, they, we make cities now, which is, this is something that I only recently got exposed to this idea, which was 
before we had cars, we designed cities for people to be able to walk everywhere. And the cities yeah. that were that that were designed 500 years ago, right, were specifically tailored to being able to walk uh, everywhere and achieve everything within walking distance. And sort of like we had the ability to scale both improved and sort of I wouldn't say destroyed, but I think we in the process of scaling we definitely lost some of the personability within society of, of, of culture, which is, I can see it in my country, which is because everything is so, so split, you don't have as much interpersonal connection anymore. You're just in your car the whole time. Yeah. And it's not, it's not built for you anymore. Your city is built for your car. Yeah. And it serves the car perfectly, but even at the cost of, of you as a human being, you're not like we have basic needs to see other human beings to interact with people. And even like when, when you're walking places, you don't have accidents. Like that's almost like you have to be like a drunk person or something because you have full body awareness of like what's going on when you're walking in a crowd. Like it's, uh, um, it it was um, something, it was a like, fascinating, yeah. There's also like, um, like I think, did you get these ideas from the account like Wrath of Gnon? Gnon? I can't pronounce it. No, it was architecture something something. Okay. It was one well, of the architecture I, I ones. Really, that account is like really amazing. Like it, I learned so much about it from like how cities and houses used to be built in the past and what functions they served. And he talks about dumb houses versus smart houses. Um, yeah, so I think like when people are living in these <clears throat> towns that are built for people, they're a lot happier and they end yeah. up being more beautiful. Yeah, it's something interesting about um, the new wave of technological advancement, which is I, I know, notice it because I'm sort of one of the, I guess I would say one of the people behind a lot of the advancement the way in which we're now having to design things is we're having to design it we're having to dumb down the design and uh, do a lot of the automation and everything else is designed for i wouldn't say dumbed down but we we have to make it very simple for people to use and i i find it interesting from a society perspective that I think a lot of people uh, have forgotten a lot of skills and we're automating a lot of skills that I'm not going to say we're, well, we're going to miss. Sorry. No, I was just going to say we're automating a lot of skills that it's not that they're, they're not useful, but it's sort of what happens if we forget how to do them or if people forget how to do yeah. them. I, like it's like if if the internet or your know, computers get turned off, this is something that that scared the the daylights out of me, right? Which is, if the internet and electricity get turned off for seven days, what happens to a country or what happens to your city? So this is the process called ratcheting, which I actually extrapolated from a genetics lecture. Um, so the ratcheting is the idea of uh, what happened when. Um, 
So mitochondria are organelles and the, there's a theory that animal cells absorbed mitochondria through symbiosis and the mitochondria was okay with this because the nuclei, like the animal cell was providing nutrients to the mitochondria and in return the mitochondria would give it like more ATP, which is the energy molecule at a much more efficient rate than um, if the animal cell had to do it on its own. Yeah. So this theory um, like led to the exploration and of like evidence for this theory was that the mitochondria has its own DNA and it replicates what through its own cycle separate from the animal cell. But there's a lot of DNA that was in the mitochondria that got sent over to the nucleus of the animal cell because that way then you would have only one controller. You wouldn't have like two controllers in one cell. And slowly over the millennia, uh, more and more DNA from the mitochondria was sent over to the nucleus so much so that if now you took a mitochondria out of the animal cell, it would die. Like it would no longer be able to live on its own. So it's genetically ratcheted in to the symbiotic relationship. So I think we're doing something very similar with technology where it's very beneficial because we are able to, it's able to do a lot of the functions for us and make our lives easier in quotes, even though like actually I think it's worse. And this like ratchets us into the relationship with technology so that we're forgetting these skills. And I was watching a documentary about um, these engineers, architects and masons like modern day. And they were rebuilding a castle in France um, that as it would have been built in the 13th century. And they were very intelligent historians and architects and engineers. And so they did like a lot of research to the point like they were not going back to hotels after they were done building. They were actually living as the builders and masons in that time period would have lived. And I learned so much, like there are so many jobs today. We say, I'm so glad that we have technology for this or that, but it's not that people, like people didn't know how to do them before. They just had like different ways of doing them. And our judgment that the way that we're doing things today is better is purely like a bias because we don't know the other ways that people did things. Yeah. But all so, the information is, is still out there. I think it's still valuable to learn. Well, I mean, if um, I think in some respects we're today is we're much better at certain things, but in some respects, in terms of say architecture, if you look at the sort of the cathedrals of three, 400 years ago, or even 200 years ago, and you compare them to the sort of modern day buildings today. Firstly, the cathedrals of today are basically, in my opinion, uh, sports stadiums, right? That, that's the sort of modern version of the same thing. Uh, that and sort of bland apartment buildings where back then the sort of boats or the, the largest structures we make are for social hedonism where back then the largest structures were for philosophical advancement or spiritual advancement. And I think that's mm. where the disparity between the two come in, which is if you look at a sports stadium, there's no sort of aesthetics to it in terms of like, yes, they try and make it look nice, but it's, that's not the purpose of it. The purpose is to host a sports, uh, a sports game, right? 
or the purpose yeah. of an apartment is to is to host a um is to make a it, people want it to look you know presentable but the goal of the developer is to make as much money as, pof- as possible where the goal of a cathedral is to serve the religion and it's a completely different mindset in terms of the construction and the design and everything else mm. so i think it, from that perspective i i would i would agree but there's but certainly other things we're way better nowadays it, like for example I, I don't know maybe think of like farming right the amount of food that we can produce now is exponential compared to what we could even 50 years ago but that food that we're producing today through factory farming practices is actually not better for us it's like like it's actually worse for our health and and if you look at it from a scientific perspective the food that comes from local farms from grass-fed farms pasture-raised animals um crop rotated vegetables that are like done in the old way those are the foods that their nutrient profiles are completely different the way that they interact with our body is completely different the haber process that was created during world war 2 to in- re-enrich soil with nitrogen so that we could like you know extract more nutrients from it like grow more food on it yes that did feed a lot of people in terms of calories but it made the entire world more nutrient deficient and these are the diseases that today we just chalk up to idiot like their idiopathic diseases or quote unquote genetic diseases and we have no idea why they occur but the answer is right in front of our faces that most people are not getting quality food even if they're fulfilling their calories interesting the the only issue i have with that right which is as we sort of scale food there's a lot of people that don't have food right and yeah so it doesn't even work that way because there are still so many people in the world who are starving even if we can produce all this excess food and there are still so many people who when they're living in countries that like where they can eat like they're still suffering from all these diseases and dying like really horrible deaths suffering from chronic diseases and they have most people in this world have no idea what it feels like to be healthy yeah well that's what um interesting which is the amount of information on the internet if anyone wants to better their lives they um yeah they're more than able to to get the information just off twitter right if you want if you wanted that's to get if you wanted to you know get into being healthy and lifting weights and going to the gym and whatever you can follow any of the you know all the health accounts you could learn everything within a good couple of months there's not much more you know if you wanted to learn how to bake you could go and what to any yeah. of the baking accounts if you wanted to learn how to make something right if you want to learn how to craft something you can go to any of the crafting channels if you want to person who lives on the other side of the world but has similar ideas you can do that like, yeah it's the the there's so many benefits to this there's so many things that i learned that i could not possibly have learned without the internet i remember reading about this artist um from new york in the 40s or 50s and he made amazing paintings but he was too poor to go to art school and he always wanted to see like master works in Europe but he could never afford a trip to Europe and unfortunately died before he could ever see these works 
and he couldn't even see copies of them. Like he had to go to the public library and he saw some of them like in books, but books are very expensive. He like now I can see any masterwork that I want. I can get a virtual tour of the Louvre like on my cell phone. So yeah, exactly. There are like huge benefits, like so much knowledge that I have is because of the internet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like what COVID has done for like workplaces too, because like the silver lining to all of this is that people have realized you don't have to live where you work. There are so many. Yeah, that's that's going to be a major game changer. I think the I think live closer to their families. I think that's going to be sorry. I think the the ability to now work remotely is going to be one of the ways that I think the restructuring of society will happen. Because I have a sort mm -hmm. of economic belief that the as a country goes further, prints more and more money because the government spends more and more, eventually that sort of, there's a, the foundation sort of breaks and that will sort of eventually split the society into two. And I think people were sort of like, well, how, if we split the society or if, we, if the society breaks in half or breaks into 12 different pieces, sort of Mexico style, um, you know, how do people work? Well, I think now people, I, I think the breakup of certain societies, whether it be Europe, America, is going to be much more, I wouldn't say clean, but there's now the drawbacks are not going to be seen as as pronounced. Where if you wanted to go and live with the libertarian crazies up in New Hampshire, you're more than capable of doing that. If you want to live with you know the liberals in San Francisco, you can go do that. If you want to live in you know with all the you know the gun shooting crazies in Texas, you can go do that. And I think the ability to work remotely. I think is going to change people's ability to not be forced to into a location. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then the like the demands or like the desires for choosing a certain location will be faced or will be determined by other factors. Like, um, you know, it's a, there are many people who are only living in a city because it's close to the job that they have that they need, and not because they actually enjoy living in that city. So then people might move closer to their families. And as people move closer to their families and spend more time with them, I think like it's going to restructure the value systems of our society. Yeah, absolutely. I think people are, I think the people are going to geolocate to areas in which they agree with people ideologically. I think that's where it's going yeah. to, where it's there going to lead to. There are a lot of to. people who are moving away from like, places with a lot of homelessness they're going to move away from those places for both safety reasons and also because of like you just don't want to see that much sadness yeah every day like it, yeah. it does hurt you on a psychological level to see like the saddest level of humanity like when you're just waiting for the bus or you're just going for a walk um yeah absolutely well so i think people are i think People are going to pick their locations now based on proximity to family, based on like the stringency of laws and how much the government interferes with your life and your decisions, um, based on the quality of the land and how much it costs. 
for you to like grow your own food or and I think a lot of a lot more people are growing their own food or trying to find like different resources for their food than previously because people are becoming more aware to the to the ways in which um, government establishment organizations are interfering with the quality of your food. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually um, actually I, I was going to say we're um, we're considering doing a one of our uh, software development on uh, on food that uh, that I'll, I'll do for another time. Um, what um what I found interesting a couple of days ago was um, you posted something about uh, a discussion you had with um, with a friend, and I really mm -hmm. wanted to go into it which was how to recognize or how to, to convince someone or when you're in a discussion with them, how to actually uh, talk to them. Because a lot mm. of times when we have disagreements now socially or sort of interpersonally, a lot of people don't know how to argue or they don't, because people have never seen it done correctly or they don't even, it's sort of like playing, if you've never played chess and you don't even know what the pieces do, most people have never, don't even know what the pieces do and then they're gonna try and sit and play chess. It doesn't kind of, it really doesn't work. And mm -hmm. the, the, this is what, it's something that I call wizardry, which is the ability to understand what people are saying and then understand what they're actually saying is, and then understand how to convince them or not, that sounds manipulative, but how to, I mean, the, the term is persuasion, but sort of if you want to change them to your version of thinking, there's a, a methodology that I don't think many people are aware of. So mm -hmm. do you want to go through that scenario of what happened? Because sure. I, th I thought it was very, uh, very instructive. Sure. Uh, okay, so the conversation just started with like, uh, I've changed my mind about a lot of topics that I used to think the opposite. And now I've like completely changed my mind about. And one of the things was abortion. So I used to think like, it's okay, in certain circumstances for women to have abortion. And it's like, it's important to keep it legal. Um, and I didn't think, I didn't ever think of it as like the killing of a child. Um, but then I took a fetal physiology class that really changed my mind about everything, ironically, like the most scientific point of view. Um, and in that class, we were just learning about the developmental stages of the fetus. And I could not distinguish between like what happens between the 23rd and 24th week that makes it more human? Like be, where, at what point does it become morally abhorrent to terminate the pregnancy? Like if you terminate a pregnancy at like eight months, like no one's going to think that that's okay. Everyone is going to think as if like you killed a child because yeah. like if you remove it, it, would, it might still survive. Um, but like, so when I was thinking back, like what, at what point does it become human and why do we now consider it a human being? 
whereas we didn't before, I couldn't think of anything except the point of conception when the two gametes come together in a process called syngamy and they align all their chromosomes and the DNA rewraps and it becomes like a completely unique human cell that is not its mother or its father. And that when I made that realization, I understood that like, okay, this one cell is the least developed stage of a human being and it is still a human cell. And so like, we can't treat it lightly to terminate that. Like it, it has to be thought of from this framework. And when I was trying to explain that to my friend, she was, she became very like irritated with that idea because she said like, it's just a clump of cells. It can't, it's not a human being. It's just a clump of cells. And she also like became very emotional talking about like what happens like if a 13 year old is raped and she's pregnant, like, do we just force her to go through with this pregnancy? Or like, what happens if someone who's older, like 25 gets pregnant and then she has to, and she has no money or she's homeless and she has to take care of this child. It's going to have a horrible life. And I was trying to explain that, like, we don't kill children if their parents are poor. We don't kill babies if like their parents can no longer support them like whether it's financially or psychologically, like we, we try to find better places for them. So why do we have like different ideas for abortion? And her response was like, why do you even care what other people are doing with their life? Like that's their decision. Like, it seems like everybody wants to make decisions about a woman's body. And so like, that's where I kind of understood, like, it's not really worth it. Like the discussion, like she doesn't, yeah, that's where it kind of got derailed. Yeah, yeah, but the, um, I, I posted sort of a, a sort of my take on it, right, which is whenever someone becomes, this is a, not an axiom that I have, but a general sort of heuristic, which is the minute someone becomes overly emotional about a position, the position is almost never the reason for the emotional outburst, because the, the emotion is a sort of an illogical response to actually I'll, 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 I'll say that again which is my the way in which i understand emotions is emotions are our internalized experience to external uh, internal moral response to external stimulus right so happiness is our internal response to something that we believe will bring us joy. And if you're a good person, that will be things like, you know, children and play and sun and singing and all that kind of stuff. And if you're a bad person or if you're a sadist, that can mean, you know, the torture of people, right? But both of those things are are correct in terms of the application. And that's how it, it needs to be universalized, right? And that's the only way you can universalize emotions. And so whenever someone becomes emotional about a topic, the emotion is the internal response to the external stimulus about a topic. And whenever that happens, the the emotion is almost never the, or the topic is never the reason for the emotional response. Because emotional responses 
can uh, uh, almost never topical. They're almost always ideological and ideology is uh, the topics emerge from ideology or the positions on a topic will emerge from ideology and not the other way around. And so whenever you see someone emotionally sort of or an emotional outburst in a, a philosophical or a, or a political discussion, I would always sort of recommend people to sort of step back and say, well, what are the principles behind the position and that's where you'll get the answer more more likely than not and once you understand it that way it becomes very easy to have a discussion with people that are emotional because you're able to understand where to sort of to guide the conversation but if well, you don't are very devoted to very devoted to their ideology as as i don't know if we have the same definition for it but some people are very devoted to that and they like have a set opinion based on and and you'll see like what i noticed is none of the points were made from a logical point of view they're made from an ideological point of view yeah well that's the whole thing right which is the points that that's, that's what i mean by the the discussion was about abortion but the real discussion had nothing to do with abortion right abortion abortion was the battle the war was ideology and the ideology is um is almost all, it'll always go down to those three things which is equality of outcome hedonism and either a perception of infinite resources and a uh, and a belief in finite wealth and i don't know if that's the ideology because the ideology seems to be a collection of points that are believed to be self-evident and repeated rather than like having any kind of logical consideration <laughs> for where they come from. So for example, like, like the ideology that I detected there was like more about like the, the, the woman suffering and like no consideration that there's also another human being there. Like there's a complete denial to see that thing as a human being and the only human in question is the woman and her suffering her her needs and desires yeah well that's um that's that, that's what I, I talked about which is that comes from anti-natalism which is it's only under anti-natalism can you think of um some or a a pregnant female as not carrying a child right go talk to any mother and say, well, when you were pregnant, was the child that you have not uh, not real, or right? Yeah, literally, yeah, yeah. no no woman yeah, yeah. will tell you that the the children no when they were pregnant. No woman will the baby is a fetus. Yeah, uh, the sort of the, I I hate that term so much. Uh, yeah, the, the fetus allows for antinatalism. That's the word that allows for it. Yeah, and it's sort of the um the sort of scientification is that a word? Of something that is right, yeah it's sort of they make it like autistic uh technical terms for things that don't need it and that's sort of how they impersonalize it um because it, once it becomes impersonal then you can remove the emotion of of the violence itself right because uh, yeah. that that sort Just of make it uh, a clinical process yeah it's the clinic yeah it's the making it clinical is how uh 
I, th I think a lot of because that that was the um, it's easier to say I'm going in for a procedure than I'm going to go kill my unborn child. Like, because that was the whole thing with the, the Milgram experiment, right? Milgram experiment was as long as the guy in the white coat uh, said it's you know everything's okay, it's science, whatever. People were willing to give people you know a thousand volt shocks, right? Uh, well, the scientist is the new priest, right? Yeah, like, that's the point yeah. of the Pope. It gives them the, some moral high ground. Everything they say is correct and yeah. like can never be refuted. And if you speak against it, it's heresy. You're an apostate. If you go against medical, and which is actually the exact opposite of what science is. Like all of these people who are talking, taking pictures with their mouth open, smiling, saying um, like, I love science or like that t wearing a t-shirt about Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like they're the opposite of scientists. Like. I can tell you that. And I'm doing my PhD right now in neuroscience and I'm designing experiments every day. I'm thinking about like scientific research papers, all these kinds of things. And I can tell you like science is good because it's a good way of asking questions. That's all it is. It's not a list of facts that are inalienable. In fact, science says that you should question every single fact on any list that somebody gives you. And try to test it well the um this is what i think a lot of people struggle with which is is i think especially people who are i, I wouldn't say conservative but more reality leaning which is they don't understand how people can because they they've never experienced this i, I call it proximity bias which is because you've never experienced people like this and you don't know what it's like and everyone around you, if everyone around you is rational, and if everyone around you is nice, you don't know what it's like to be around irrational people and people who aren't nice. And exactly. I think the and, issue with this. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to uh, say the, the ideology is that they actually don't have uh, a, a link to reality. The idea they have, that's what I call ideological capture, which is their ideology mm -hmm. is, is those three things plus the will to power. And once you sever the link between reality and ideology, the ideology, the, the brain will start to filter reality to meet the ideology. And that's what happens with science. They believe in science, not because science is something to believe in, but rather science is the methodology that they believe has the best likelihood to achieve their outcome. And the outcome is the, is the ideology itself. And that's why you have, a, I believe in science, because if the, if the science went against them, like the church, right, it was exactly the same thing in a in reverse, right? When, out, out, like there's so yeah. much science that I've discovered that it, like, because I the the ability to read scientific literature is a power, yeah, and you have to yeah, yeah. use it well. And not everyone can do it. Everyone can find papers. Everyone can link them to whatever they want. But very few people have the training and the education to understand statistics to be able to tear apart like uh, like a figure in the results section. Actually understand what was being tested and to what degree it actually represents the variables that it's making conclusions about. And when I like read about all of the topics that I'm interested in and I find papers about this, I find there's a lot of science that directly contradicts 
the mainstream ideas that are so widely accepted, but they're not spoken about because they go against the ideology. And I think this came about because like there was a debate like for, for my generation, at least, there was a debate in 2015 or 16 between Bill Nye and some other dude about like, is God real? And I think like when you put science against religion like that, you give people the framework that whichever one wins is going to be my way of seeing the world. And if people have, but science and religion are two completely different things. They're not even comparable. Like religion is like a way to understand the world spiritually and the transcendent that's beyond your the physical realm. Whereas science is a way of asking questions about the physical realm, that's it. So yeah. when you put science versus religion, you give people the, people already had religion. And then when science quote unquote won, people just said, okay, well, religion lost. So I'm gonna put science in the same role that religion was serving where that doesn't make any sense. Like science cannot serve the role of religion, but it's being, but that role is being foisted onto science. And I think that's why we have people who now either hate science or they made science their religion. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy dichotomy that was that's created, right? Which is, you have people yeah. that are now anti-science. It's a false dichotomy all people that are uh, full of insights. And what's also crazy is I, I saw this in New Zealand uh, uh, coming a year or two ago, which was the, this is just a, a random sort of thing, but it always stuck with me, which was the beef and lamb uh, sort of New Zealand beef and lamb marketing group or the, um, the sort of uh, group tasked with advertising it to the world or New Z advertising New Zealand products to the world, started citing the study that you should only be eating red meat two to three times a week because that's the recommended healthy dose, right? And eating any more was, um, was dangerous for you, but two to three times a week is fine. And it's sort of like, even these people uh, would, would refer to the study and the study is complete nonsense, right? The study, all they did was they took a whole bunch of random people, right? And they said, well, mm -hmm. what is your average diet? And because the average, and they said, well, because we extrapolated that from this uh, group of people, uh, the diet that they ate was, uh, had steak in it, and they had an increased mm -hmm. risk of heart, of, um, heart disease and something else, yeah. that it must, have been, it, 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 it must have been the steak, right? And it, or it must have been the red meat. And so then they're like, yep. So the, the recommended thing is we're gonna say two to three days, two to three times a week you can eat meat because of this random study of self-reported people having a high of a marginal higher risk of heart disease. And, the, and that is, and th these are people who are paid to sort of debunk this stuff, right? And they don't even read the study. They just read the conclusion. They're like, yep, must be right. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's, it's like, that they're only reading the conclusion. It takes like so much effort. Even I don't want to read the results to papers in my own field, like, cause it takes so much brain power, but yeah, that's what you have. You're so yeah. right. Like it's, people say like, there's a study that can say anything causes cancer. It's like, well, there are only very few good studies. Like it's just cause you can't understand them or read them. Like that doesn't mean that there can be a study to prove everything. Yeah, and it's like every like 
every day there's like a new study oh eggs are bad for you avocado is bad for you avocado is good for you eggs are good for you and it's like people i think the the real problem and then is people that say like people, oh if there's a study for everything like i'm not going to believe any of it well that's yeah. not the right approach either because some studies are better than others you have to have the critical exactly. thinking skills to actually read them evaluate them understand them and i think when people do that like they realize that the same results are always produced like that's yeah. the beauty of it the big problem like is i, I find called, uh, yeah sorry what were you saying oh there's a book i read called estrogen matters by carol carol Tar travis travis which yeah. um which debunks like a really major study about estrogen and it's a really good exercise in critical thinking if anyone wants to explore like the ways in which um a study can manipulate data or yeah. like mistakes in critical thinking well there was um i don't know if you saw the um the uh the famous um gmo studies which was uh the i don't know if you did you see that where what they no. did the that one of the few times so uh, for people that don't know right when a study is incorrect there's normally a refutation but very rarely will a study have a what's called a retraction where mm -hmm. they actually have to remove it because it was uh that was it's a very rare rare occurrence where something is actually retracted and they had to retract this gmo study because what they did was they took gmo food and they fed it to rats but the the problem was is they took rats with um with a genetic propensity for for tumors and then said yeah well, they were probably immune compromised like that's yeah, those are the ones we and they and they said that the gm the the this specifically genetically modified food caused the tumors in rats but the whole thing is is that the rats are designed to get tumors and then they yeah. took these pictures and it went all over the internet and for like 15 years, all these people in my country were like, oh, this food must be dangerous because like the rats got deformed and, the, and nothing was, yeah, and could it, be it further was, from the truth. It was, it was, it was wild when I saw that. Yeah, yeah, like it really detracts from asking the actual question. Like we still don't know what the effect of that GMO food was. Like maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but that wasn't a good study. Yeah, so yeah. I think like, I think like it's funny that you're mentioning this because I'm preparing for a defense right now. And it's like, when you do any kind of experiments, these are the questions that they're definitely ask you on a scientific committee. Like you, you almost expect them. If you're using any kind of animal model in your experiments, you expect yeah. these kinds of questions. You have to defend it. You have to explain how you controlled for it. And when you use immune compromised animals for any study, you have to like, talk about why you use that model and how it interferes with your results or how you control for it. So clearly like someone without scientific training has no business interpreting science. Yeah, exactly. Because there's a lot of questions, but, uh... like even the course of my master's, like there's so many questions that I learned to ask and think about that I would have never known to ask before. What's um what's crazy though is I actually find that people no longer are interested in finding out. They just sort of because there's so much information, people will have their personal biases and they sort of just select the information that confirms what they believe and that's what they go with. 
I don't think very, I think a lot of people now are just, because it's that we don't have a sort of anchor to reality, right? There's no consequences to being incorrect, at least sort of any short-term consequences to being incorrect. There's no, um, there's no natural sort of imposition to being correct. If, uh, it's sort of like a backwards way of saying it, but the there's no con because there's no consequences people can be wrong and nothing happened right and yeah. i and people are sort of just they have their own biases whether they're correct or not and they're sort of just going through the world looking to to confirm them right whether you're a carnivore looking to uh, do the carnivore diet right or if you're a vegan looking to validate the vegan diet or if you're a pescatarian to validate that diet or if you're a I'm a runner, so this is why running is the best, or I'm into weights, this is why weights is the best, or I'm into swimming, swimming is the, right? It's it's crazy that um, that people like don't, uh, it, that's sort of how I think people are now, is they just sort of self-validate their own beliefs. But I think like that's not necessarily a bad thing because at the end of the day, when these decisions are about your own life, like they're going to affect you primarily when you make these decisions. So if you advocate that running is the best and you are running all the time and it's keeping you healthy, it's like, which probably personal opinion is probably won't. It's like, then it like, then that's good for you. Like you tried it yourself. It works for you. You, you don't have chronic diseases. You don't have ill health. Like you're happy then who cares? Like that's, but that's the thing. Like people are not always transparent about their health or they have some kind of cognitive dissonance. I see so many like Fitstagram girls and um, they like, you know, they talk about their diets, they talk about their exercise and they're doing like many things that I would not do. And then they like in the same breath after like explaining their lifestyle, like the choices that they're making that, they're aware of then they also like mention that they're depressed or they have anxiety or they have skin issues or they have this chronic disease or they have endometriosis and it's like they can't put together the fact that their own decisions might be contributing to the bad outcomes that they're experiencing yeah yeah that, that's sort of what that, i mean that's which where is... it's dangerous like like it's fine if you're finding papers and studies and everything to validate yourself or like the diets or the exercise or the life choices that you're following. But at the end of the day, while you're doing all of this stuff, you have to be completely honest with yourself about the results that it's giving you. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I was getting at, which is unless th there's no long-term consequences or sort of short-term consequences imposed, and the sort of long-term consequences, once we have a bias that we think is correct, it takes a lot of information to sort of, to break that bias, right? We have to have a lot of information to come in. And even then we can, we will chalk it up to something else other than what we actually believe. So mm -hmm. what's actually known in, um, in, re in research on this, which is if you give someone uh, contrary information to what they actually believe that's incorrect that will actually reinforce their belief which mm. is a, a strange way of thinking but uh, what it means is 
if you think that vegetarianism or veganism is the best way of eating for your health and you become sick, what happens is instead of saying, well, it, it might have been the vegan diet, what you say is that it was because I wasn't strict enough to the vegan diet or I didn't adhere strict oh, enough, right? And that's yeah. sort of um, the, so the problem arises, which is how do you break that? Uh, that is uh, a very tough nut to crack, right? Well, many people have cracked that nut, to be honest. Like there's so many videos on YouTube, why I'm no longer vegan. If you just look at that sentence. No, I don't, and, I don't mean as a, as like a, I'm just using veganism as an example, but yeah, the, I've, the, I've seen an example, like some people, yeah. like they, they, unfortunately they see it after a long enough time, they experience the consequences and they can no longer ignore like yeah. what the correlation could be. And in, so for some people, they get out before they've done any kind of permanent damage for others. It's much, much later in life. And yeah. they, they have a lot more work to do to regain their health or their abilities again. Like the same thing with like feminism, like there's some decision-making value systems that people believe are like totally good for them or fine. Like for example, um, promiscuity, um, et cetera. Like, it, you you make these decisions and they catch up to you at a later date and when it catches up to you when you realize it may or may not be too late to reverse the damage yeah yeah, yeah. it's That's, like everybody uh, is running their own personal experiment <laughs> it's uh, true and scary at the same time right which is all yeah. the the sort yeah, of informational overload no, the I, I don't know. I find this um, a pretty damning thing on sort of mainstream news, though, because I think it's the role of if you're a mainstream news outlet. Yeah, everybody's reinventing the wheel. That that was that was this was always the job of mainstream news was this was uh, I guess their role in society was to filter out everything incorrect and uh, present to people the most correct way of living. But the problem is, is that if they're incorrect, then everyone's incorrect, right? And mm -hmm. the what's interesting about the internet is everyone figured out that the sort of emperor has no clothes, right? Which is that yeah. these people are not very clever. They're, or at least some of them aren't, that they actually don't know what they're talking about. And very quickly, you can sort of dismantle it. And the whole, everyone gets, uh, it's just, I think everyone gets an opinion is just as bad as only the, you know, a select group of people get an opinion. But I think the re, this goes back to what we talked about earlier. I think the reason they're losing their legitimacy, at least in terms of the public eye, uh, I think slowly over time is simply because they're incorrect, right? And people are able to see that yeah, they're, that they're incorrect. In your, in your results in your life, like it comes yeah. out that way. In the past, like it would have been the job, everyone didn't have to reinvent the wheel in the past. Like your elders, your family, your community would tell you what's the best way to do things and you listen to it. They were generally right. Like, yeah, because it worked for them. You know, they had gone through the experiment. Other people had done the same thing. But now it's like we live in a completely different world with so many different moving parts that we are kind of figuring out 
like how to do everything. We are reinventing it. And I think our generation is very much like a guinea pig generation for all of these changes. And like maybe like the optimistic side is like in the future, we'll be able to tell our children what's the best way to do things based on experience. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's an interesting way to think, which is that if everyone gets in it, because this will put the sort of, this is sort of putting the libertarianism sort of idea to the test, which is the best ideas should float to the top. But in that process, that well, A, they don't, uh, but also B, in that process, you know, how many people are we going to, you know, are going to be sacrificed on the altar of everyone gets, you know, I don't know, it's tough. Yeah, because there's a, a lot of... Well, with the libertarianism, I think libertarianism is like the invention of the devil. Like, it's just, Why I think it's that? a very, it's like a path to hell. Like, it's it's pernicious. You don't see it at first. It Like, on the outside, it looks very nice. It looks very beautiful. But I think it leads the way to a lot of, like, degeneracy in your society. Because it, libertarianism assumes that every person can be completely independent from every other person that we don't influence each other's decisions just by the way that we're living when actually the opposite is true so you're you're definitely influenced by the people you interact with the most you become more like them you adopt their habits so if we just say like everyone should be allowed to do whatever they want one every single person has to reinvent the wheel as we said like to figure out what's the best way to do things and two, um, it ignores the fact that like you're, you might be making good decisions, but people you care about around you who are more vulnerable, like your younger brothers or sisters, your children, they go out into that same society and they might be influenced by people who are making really, really bad decisions. And like, what kind of society do you want to live in? So if we, I think with COVID and the new, the changing like ideas about where we're going to live, um, people are going to increasingly select and curate their own societies that they're living in based on their values. And why would they want to live in such a homogenous society for the very reason that we influence each other's decisions? Interesting. Because uh, I would say that libertarianism isn't, I guess it depends on, on what you mean by by the definition because libertarianism is simply the belief in uh, from what i understand is a belief in limited government which is if you limit the government's ability you know they don't believe oh, right. in, in the government doing things but the personal autonomy you can you can is up to you yeah. right i guess because i wasn't thinking from a government point of view i was thinking more of like value systems and society point of view yeah, well, this was the like the the sort of OG libertarian was uh, Thomas Jefferson, right? Which is, but he famously said, "You can't have a sort of libertarian type society without it being Christian," which is an interesting way to think about it. Which is that mm -hmm. the religion, because this was uh, I had a discussion with a friend a couple of nights ago, which was that the religion either the something has to be the governing body of a society. And, um, oh, sorry, one sec. Sorry, uh, something has to be the governing body of society and either it's gonna be the government or it's gonna be some form of religion, 
and because there's a lot of resources that are required, especially for social services. And what happened is religion used to do things like school and hospitals and all these other services that um, used to be provided by the church, things like orphanages, um, all the all the third party sort of, I wouldn't say the, it's the real sort of dirty work that society, society, in order for society to sort of coherently function, that they need to be done and no one wants to sort of see them and talk about them. And the church used to do all that. You know, all the homeless, you know, the homeless would go to the church. Yeah. All, the, all the people that didn't have food, you'd go to the church. Um, uh, the, you know, the, the churches used to run all the hospitals and slowly the government it's, sort of took over. You mentioned that. Like, it's hilarious that you mentioned that because um, over the course of COVID, I was volunteering, like I've, I've always volunteered like on Saturdays to like feed the homeless. And yeah. it's always to the church. And I, it's really interesting because when I go there, the other people who are volunteering are always like retired or elderly people from the community. Like it's yeah. never young people who are yeah, volunteering yeah. there. And yeah. it's so ironic because most of the young people in my generation would call themselves activists or call themselves as like caring about these so many causes, but like how they're actually spending their time. They're not actually like, doing the things that they're saying that they care about people like you know well this was um i guess this is the difference in ideology which is the activists of today see the government as the methodology of solving their problems yeah which is they don't the, they, do it they they're like, yeah they sort of delegate they don't they're the biggest care of all yeah they they delegate that they the think yeah, they, they delegate the issue to the government. And it's like, oh, well, old people need help. So the government should pay for old people caring workers, right? The poor people need help. So the government should pay for the housing, right? Poor people need food. Government should pay for the food, poor, right? And it's sort of, this is what I say. It's the perception of infinite resources. Yeah, one of the things- trying to take on the task themselves. Yeah. And one of the things that the church would have to do is the church would have to- deal or stay within its own amount of money right well there was a limited amount of resources that the church had and so the church was forced to be efficient with the resources it distributed right because it couldn't print money there was a limit to how much it could do and so it would be much more sparing where with the government there's sort of mm. there's no safety valve on how much money it will spend because they equate spending money with success yeah like exactly and they underestimate what people's time can do yeah because yeah. they they don't see that as scaling but technically like if you have a creative enough idea it can scale yeah to help more people yeah yeah no it's uh an interesting dichotomy there there was advancements in the way in which we did things that have been lost because uh very quickly oh it's a rejection of structure yeah yeah, yeah. because yeah, society, yeah. Is structure. society is structure and then when people want to rebel people rebel in order to like especially young people to form an identity because 
we form identities like in contrast to things against things because when we're young we don't ha we haven't done anything yet so we can't define ourselves in a positive way like positive as in like cr creative we have to define ourselves against other things negating things and if the society around you is based around structure you define your identity you find your identity in its opposite by negating that structure yeah and that's one hypothesis anyway for a reason that that could be i think there's other other reasons like there it's multifactorial yeah um but yeah i think like i think that with the new changes with covid and how people are um more mistrustful of establishment both government and medical um and the ways in which people can choose better like ha have different selection criteria for where they're living i think people will return to more of a private quote-unquote or sorry primal quote-unquote life because they will live more closely to people whose values that they share yeah and that's yeah, yeah. i guess more primal way of living they're not as connected to the like the whole world yeah there's um I think it's, yeah, it's sort of like the separation between the people who are able to think and the sort of lizard brain hedonists i don't know it's uh i wonder how the distinctions are going to be written in the future because i have my own distinctions but i always wonder how history today is going to be written sort of 20 years from now right or you know 100 years yeah. from now because experience like if you look at like the iraq war what will never be told was the main is the you know the blizzard of bullshit because i remember it even as a child the you know all the lies that were told to get people to go to war and yeah and that's the thing like living through something like corona i think makes a young intelligent person question everything that they've learned in the past because they realize if they can lie to us now they've probably lied to us about a lot of stuff in the past yeah, yeah. Like about and, that we're reading and i think it makes people more believing in different conspiracy theories and you learn that they're not actually conspiracy theories they're just like the truth that the mainstream media does not like advertise because it's it goes against the interests of people who are profiting from these lies yeah um I don't know. I've always been like I sort of went through a phase of conspiracy theories, but I always, um, I always, I used to think as sort of my own version of proximity bias that it was like a all these conspiracy theories were real. But I was like, now I just realize that most people are just incompetent, right? I used to think that uh, it has to be you know that, that everyone's aware of what's going on, but now. I'm not as uh, I'm not as convinced. I actually just think most people uh, just have no idea what they're doing, and the sort of it's sort of like the the pre the you know the sort of old old school um, uh, uh, priests on the island where they sort of pray to me and I'll stop the volcano from erupting, right? And that's sort of how I see modern a lot of modern society, which is people just sort of delegated their thinking and to these people that have absolutely no idea what they're doing, right? So if, uh, especially in things like economics, because I'm, I actually understand it, uh, most people, like even the people running these central banks have no idea about what they're talking about. And it's, 
I don't know how it's going to turn out. And I don't know how it's going to be written because I've now I 100% believe that history is written by the uh, the winners, right? And very rarely will you see an accurate description of what was actually happening or written at the time, aside from maybe now, right? I mean, we have sort of, but the problem is, is that you now have uh, certain companies sort of rewriting history as it happens, which is even scarier, right? You're seeing uh, it in real time. Like yeah, yeah. Yeah, sort of, it used to be just the historians would do it for the textbooks, but now it's, uh, they do it in real time, which is uh, its own version of uh, scary. So I think we've been talking for like three and a half hours. Have we? Oh, so. wow. Okay. All right, we'll stop the recording yeah. here. It's been, it's been a great conversation. I enjoyed it. Yeah, like uh, even my brain's like running out of power now. It's like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, I, I know what you mean. That's... Uh, it was a great conversation. I hope everyone enjoyed it. If you made it to the end, congratulations. Um, so yeah, well, uh, thank you very much. It was great. Yeah, thanks for having me.